I invite you to turn with me to Revelation 22. Revelation 22 is where we'll be reading this morning, the text upon which our sermon is based. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. I'll read it for our hearing. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you don't have a copy in front of you, I invite you to follow along there. If you're a guest with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you've chosen to worship with us today, whether you're online or here in person. Uh, online, there's a, uh, a place on the homepage of our website where you can fill out a guest card, also submit prayer requests if there are things we can pray with you or for you about. It'd be our honor to do that. And if you're here in person and want to fill out one of those, there's some cards on the seats around you. You can fill out one of those and drop it in the box on your way out today. We'd love to connect with you, answer any questions you have, or just pray for you and the needs in your life. But this morning, this third Sunday of Advent, we'll be reading from Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. And it reads as follows. John writes these words. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's Word. Listen. If you didn't see the email yesterday or drive by the property on Highway 66 uh, over the course of the last several days, we've had a guy out there with this big, incredible machine who's been doing some work, okay? He's been clearing some of the property out there that we recently purchased. And so uh, I was able to walk the property, parts of the property I'd never seen before uh, over the course of the last several days. If you want to go by and see it this afternoon, I highly recommend it. Just don't pull into the property because you will not get out at this point. I can guarantee you that, okay? It is soupy out there right now. Uh, But he brought in some equipment. He began to mow over a lot of the cedar trees that were there, left some of them standing for us to shape up as beautiful pieces of God's workmanship, Uh, but the land has now been cleared to the creek uh, that runs along its boundary. And so uh, it's an exciting time. It was really cool to see that property taking shape as he worked day to day over the course of Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. But one of the things as I began to walk the property and some of the areas that have been cleared out that I began to notice is that over the years, many people have been using the property as a dump site Okay, And so there must have been bags and bags of clothing and shoes that were dumped out there at some point. Uh, there, somebody, it looks like somebody gutted an old RV and dumped the stove and the sink and the countertops out there. I mean, there's appliances out there. Somebody brought a mattress out there and dumped it in the middle of the property where you couldn't see before. And so as he's going through churning up stuff, he's grinding up mattresses. Obviously, he, couldn't, he didn't grind up the uh, appliances. That probably would have done a little damage to his equipment. Uh, but there's even, there was even a couple of old boats that somebody dumped out there. Some of you are like, where? 
where at can I go reclaim them, okay? Trust me, you don't want them. I promise you that. One is an old wooden canoe that is halfway rotted. Uh, half of it still exists. The other one is an old fiberglass boat of which the top cap had been removed. The stringers are all rotten and the transom is rotten. But somebody decided that was a great place to dump it, okay? So they just kind of nestled it up under some of the cedars and left it there to decay, Right, somebody's been using, a lot of people have been using that as a dump site over the years. But it got me to thinking about why is it that people bring things to a dump in the first place. Oftentimes, people bring things either to that property or an actual landfill property where it can be properly disposed of. The reason people bring things to a dump in the first place is because they've given up hope that it could ever be fixed, Right? That it could ever be repaired, so they get rid of it. That it could ever be restored. That it could ever fulfill its original intent again. It's been so damaged that they've given up hope that it could ever be useful or ever be beautiful again. That's why we throw things away. That's why we bring things to the dump. And yet on this third Sunday of Advent, church... I want to remind us from Revelation 22 that God does not think that way. God does not think that way. See, one of the things that we celebrate every Advent season is joy. The joy that we find in our life because of Jesus. And one of the things that robs us of joy in our lives is the belief that what has been lost is gone forever. It can suck the joy right out of us, that what has been lost is gone forever, that it can never be recovered or restored or redeemed. It can never fulfill its original intent again. It can never be beautiful or useful. But Revelation 22 reminds us that we can recover our joy by looking at this picture of what God does because God doesn't just scrap all of creation whenever our first parents fall in the garden and sin invades and infects everything. But rather God sets in plan a motion to restore, to reclaim, to recover, to redeem everything that has fallen and to heal everything that has been broken and to gather up all that has been lost. And we see a picture of that in Revelation 22. So I want to point us to it this morning. And I want us to see two things, very simply. And that is this. That whenever we think, the first one is this. That when we think about heaven, because that's what we see a picture of here. We see a picture of heaven in Revelation 22. And whenever we think about heaven, we need to first of all see that heaven is a restoration of Eden. It's a restoration of Eden. Now, if you back up in the text that we looked at last week in Revelation 21, 9 to 27, heaven's described as a city coming down out of heaven from God to fill the world as the holy of holies, the place where God's presence would dwell with his people for all of eternity in this new holy city. But here, heaven is described as the final garden of Eden. 
a compilation of the world's most beautiful gardens. Think about all the beautiful gardens that have ever existed on the face of the earth and you raise them exponentially and here you have the final Eden coming down out of heaven from God, the place in which God's presence would dwell and we would walk with him and dwell with him forever. See, if our first parents had not fallen, if they had not sinned, this would have been theirs. And yet now in Revelation 22, listen, because of God's amazing love that we celebrated this morning as we read Scripture and lighted the candle, because of God's amazing love and His grace and His power, it will be one day ours. Imagine spending eternity in this beautiful garden Right, that combines all the loveliness of creation. Right, I can remember when my kids were young, we used to go out to the arboretum every spring as the tulips would begin to emerge from the ground. Those bulbs that had been set in the dirt over the course of the last several months, they began to pop up and all the bright and beautiful colors come into bloom. Or you think about the Arboretum here in Dallas. Or you think about all the civic gardens across our nation or across the globe. You add all those together and raise them to the highest power. And that's where we will spend eternity. The emphasis in the text is on the utter magnificence of this garden. And the extent to which it will indeed fulfill the deepest longings of the human heart. See, God there will provide for us and care for us for all of eternity. All of our needs will be met. All of our hurts will be healed. Our sins forgiven. In an eternal sense, we will have everything we've ever needed and everything that that have been the deepest longings of our heart. So you get to the end of the Bible, and the Bible ends where it begins. It ends in a garden, but it begins in a garden. And this garden in Revelation has two main features that you also see highlighted at the beginning of the Bible. And the first one is this. It has the river of life. See, in verse 1, we see the angel showing John the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. The river of life flows. It's like John has this vision and he sees this grand boulevard running down the heart of the city. And remember, it's paved in gold. Okay, so this gold, transparent, pure gold running down the heart of the city. It's like a big expressway, except the median, right, is not a few oak trees or a concrete barrier. Okay, the median in between these, these, these two, this, this, this boulevard is a river of life, bright as crystal, pure, and flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. John sees this, and it, this description matches the river that in Genesis 2.10 flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There's a river in Eden that's flowing to water this lush garden, this place of delight that God had prepared for our first parents. So in the first garden, you had a river. In the second, the last garden, you have a river. And listen, there are hints of this river all throughout the Bible. There was, now historically, there was no river flowing in the literal city of Jerusalem. Okay? But the prophets continue to see it and talk about it. Ezekiel saw water issuing from the temple in Ezekiel 41, or 47 verse 1, in this restoration of the temple. 
He sees water coming out of it. In Psalm 46, 4, the psalmist says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. In other words, there is a source of life that delights the people of God and the city of God, although Jerusalem had no source of water running through it. Zechariah 14, 8 promises that living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem. In John 4 and John 7, Jesus offers living water to all who would come and drink of what he had to offer. And all of this that's hinted at through the rest of Scripture is fulfilled by the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb in Revelation 22. It's all bringing us somewhere. It's not coincidence that these things are spoken of throughout the rest of Scripture. It's God laying hint after hint after hint after hint about where the treasure is. It's in heaven. And listen, even in our sanitized world, okay, where water is piped into our homes through, through dependable pipes coming from reservoirs or tanks that hold it and spigots or faucets that we can turn on demand, we still can't live without it, can we? We have to have water. And John describes this scene for an ancient audience whose water didn't come from spigots, they didn't come from taps, it didn't come from faucets, but it came, rather, from rivers and streams and rainfalls and wells that they drew out of the ground. And listen, a poisoned well in the ancient world meant that people were going to die, and so did a drought. Either of those two conditions meant that you were done So when he describes this river of the water of life, bright as crystal, it points to the fact that God is providing a basic need that enables survival. But it isn't merely survival, church. Listen, it's also this river, the supply is abundant. It's not a ditch, okay? It is a river that is flowing from the very presence of God and the person of God himself to bring life to all who would drink of its waters. It's an abundant supply, but it's also a pure supply. So in other words, there is no drought in heaven in which we would lack water, and there is no poisoned well in heaven. There is no contaminated source in heaven because it is bright and pure as crystal which fulfills Ezekiel's vision of a river flowing from the temple that makes even the seawater fresh in Ezekiel 47 verses 8 to 10 and gives life to all kinds of fish. That makes me excited. That is the first feature that we see in this new garden. This last garden, the final garden, is the river that brings life. The second feature is the tree of life. See, our first parents surrendered life whenever they chose the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were expelled from the garden as a result. And in Genesis 3.22, that tree is set out of bounds so that our first parents could not take of the tree of, of life and be and, and, uh, in the midst of their sin and attain immortality and be separated from God forever. It's actually grace that God banished them from the garden and cut off access to the tree of life. But now, listen, that eternal life has returned to God's people because sin has been dealt with. 
It has been dealt with. And so Eden is restored, and it's far greater than it was in Genesis 2 and 3, for life permeates the whole order of creation. And there are hints through the Bible of this as well. In Ezekiel 47, verse 12, Ezekiel writes about a day that would come in which fruit trees of all kinds would grow on both banks of this river that came out of the temple of God, healing of the, of the nation of Israel. But like the original Eden, abundant fruitfulness flourishes and now that fruit is not just physical but it's also eternal life and the promise of revelation 2 7 in which god promises that those who endure would eat from the tree of life is now fulfilled in revelation 22 see these multiple trees of life that line both sides of the banks of the river of life in heaven they produce 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month now the promise that fruit would be provided every month of the year is pretty phenomenal right Right? Now, in our modern world, in our world, right, you get one crop a season. Okay? One crop a season. And one tree produces only one kind of fruit. Okay? But here, these trees that line both banks of the river, they're producing 12 months out of the year a different crop every month, which is phenomenal. Right now, in our modern world, with all the shipping practices that we have, it feels like strawberries grow year-round, right? Because they're growing in different parts of the world, but they don't grow year-round everywhere. But here, they grow year-round. I hope strawberries are part of the fruits, right? Those are delicious. But this adds to 21 verse 4, where where we're told, as we saw a few weeks ago, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, and now no more hunger and no more thirst. Yet there's more. It says even the leaves will heal the nations, which is another allusion to Ezekiel 47. In Ezekiel, it's the national Israel that will experience healing from the leaves of the tree. But here, listen, it's not just national Israel, it's all the ethnos, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. This means that the old hurts and divisions will be healed. The nationalism, the racism, the hostility, the bitterness and long history of warfare will all be healed by the leaves of the tree of life, the redeemed of every tribe and every nation and every tongue will drink of the crystal clear water of life, eat from the nourishing fruit of the tree of life, and be healed by the leaves of that tree. See, Revelation 21, or 22, I'm sorry, corresponds to and goes beyond what we see in the Garden of Eden. Now, now, like, what does all this mean? <laughs> Listen, clearly, the major characteristic of this new garden that we see in Re- Revelation 22 is this. It's life. Life everlasting. Life that does not wither. Life that does not dry up. Life that does not stop being productive. Life. And life to its fullest. Jesus says in John chapter 10, the thief comes to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have what? Life. And not just any old kind of life, but abundant life. Jesus says that's 
possible here and now, but it will be fully revealed then and there in this new Eden. And what this shows us, church, is this. It shows us a lot of things, but I want to give you one of them this morning. Is that God is not a God who gives up on what He has made. He does not give up hope that His creation and His creatures made in His image could ever be fixed. Or could ever be repaired. Or could ever be restored. That they could ever be beautiful, reflecting His glory in all of His splendor. Again, rather, he works by the power of the Holy Spirit through the life, death, resurrection, and return of his Son to restore, repair, reclaim, and redeem all that's been broken by sin. So that our first parents and us subsequently who have been banished from the garden, the place of delight and paradise, would one day be welcomed into the garden, the place of paradise forever. That what they lost on account of their sin, what we lost on account of sin in the world, has been restored on account of the obedience of Jesus Because God didn't just bring it to the dump and discard it as unuseful or unlovely. He says, rather, I'm going to give my son to make you lovely and to bring you into my presence, into this restored creation forever. So let me ask you a question, church. What in your life have you given up hope If God can make a beautiful garden out of thorn-cursed ground. Remember that? From Genesis 3? Out of thorn-cursed ground. He can make a beautiful garden. And He can make anything in our lives beautiful again. He really can bring beauty from ashes. I was reminded of the text in Isaiah chapter 61 whenever Jesus opens the scroll upon his first advent and he begins to read in the temple speaking of how he has been anointed to preach the good news to the poor, set free the captives. Well, if you read further on in Isaiah chapter 61 in the context of what Jesus was writing, he says this in Isaiah's uh, reading in Isaiah 61 verse 3. That he's come to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. That God is able to bring beauty from ashes. No matter what has been burned down. It's one of the promises of Revelation 22. He hasn't given up. And neither should we. So church, this Advent, I want to appeal to you. I want to appeal to you. Because heaven is a restored Eden. And that God is even working now to bring that into existence. Therefore, whatever it is that, has, that you feel like you've lost, that you can never recover, that is robbing you of joy, 
I want to point you back to finding your joy in God. That's the second thing I would say to you this morning, is find your joy in God. Now you may say, where do you get that from in the text? Let me show it to you. In John's description of heaven, he saves the best for last. Okay? In verses 3 to 5, we see this astounding picture of what will not be in heaven, but also of what will be in heaven. So let's look at those two things. What will not be in heaven, church, is the curse of sin. See, in verse 3, we're told that in heaven there will no longer be anything that is accursed. Anything that is accursed. But see, from the time of Genesis 3 forward, we've been living under the curse of sin, the divine judgment of God against humanity's rebellion, against His good and gracious rule. In Zechariah 14, verse 11, we read about the day that's coming that Zechariah sees in which there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. What that referred to was there will be a day that would be coming in which the covenant curses that are given in the book of Deuteronomy on account of the rebellion of God's people would be done away with. They would no longer be needed because Christ had atoned for sin that Adam and Eve brought upon humanity and the evil that resulted had been done away with for all of eternity. So once sin had been fully dealt with, indeed the curse could be completely removed. But in between, before that day comes, Paul would write about the curse in Galatians chapter 3. And he tells us that everyone who relies on the works of the law, which would have brought for themselves the covenant curses, right? Because if you didn't keep these things, it went pretty bad for you, okay? And he says, everyone who relies on the works of the law to make themselves right with God, they are under a curse. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26 to show that if we fail to keep all of God's commands, then we are cursed, And then he goes on further in Galatians 3 to say this. He turns the corner and says that Jesus has rescued us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In other words, taking God's divine judgment upon himself at the cross, Jesus has rescued us from the curse of the law. And then, right, you see, so much of what you see in Revelation, to understand it, you've got to understand the Bible previous to it. Because there's so much of it that's just threads that are woven through that you miss the fullness of what's going on. Because then in Revelation 19, when Jesus returns on a white horse to judge and make war against all those who reject him, he defeats all of his enemies. He casts them into the lake of fire. And they are fully and forever defeated, including the last enemy, which is death. So now in Eden, in this new Eden, listen, sin is no more because it's now in the lake of fire. It's been, it's been done away with. And as a result, the curse is removed forever from all who would live in this new Jerusalem, which is this garden city. It's a beautiful picture. But not only that. That's what won't be in heaven, the curse of sin, the judgment of God. But what will be in heaven, listen church, is the personal presence of God himself. 
In verse 3, we're told that the throne of God and the Lamb are present in the new Eden and that God's servants will worship Him. See, the business of heaven, church, is worship. It's worship, declaring the beauty and the worth and the magnificence and the splendor of God. And so you want to know what Sunday mornings are in the light of heaven? They're a rehearsal, okay? When we gather for worship together as a corporate body, we are rehearsing the business of heaven on earth. That's what we're doing. Which is one of the reasons why it's vital for you. If you find Sunday morning to be unessential in your Christian life, then you will find heaven. Then then your hope isn't for heaven, okay? Your hope is for something other than heaven. Because the business of heaven is worship, and we're rehearsing that here on earth. That God's throne is there. His servants will worship him. See, when God redeemed Israel from Egypt, when he rescued them out of slavery, he did so so they could serve him. But as soon as they were free, what did they begin to do? Worship and serve other gods. They began to rebel against him. And yet the fulfillment of the exodus is described here in Revelation has a very different outcome because God redeems his people so they would serve him. And in 22.3, it tells us they will do just that. They will serve him forever as priests to God. See, we've been purchased by his blood and we belong to him as his special possession. And as such, we are members of his family, protected by him. And our response is that we would worship him and offer him all of our life. So the throne's there, his servants are there, and they're worshiping him. In addition, we're told in verse 4 that the servants of God will see his face. Now again, there's a thread that goes all through the scriptures. Throughout the Bible, there's been a progression. In Exodus 33:20, Moses could not look on God's face and live. That's why whenever he's up there receiving the tablets, he says, God, I want to see your face. And God says, Moses, you don't know what you're asking for. If you saw my face, your face would melt off. Okay, kind of like Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Where, where all the people open the ark and the, the fire comes out and they just melt like wax in the presence of God. Right? He says, that's what's going to happen to you, Moses. So I'm going to cover you, and I'll let you see my backside glory as I pass by, but you cannot see my face in Exodus 33. In John chapter 1, verses 14 and 18, Jesus Christ, we're told, is the Word made flesh, the glory of God encased in human flesh, so that to look upon Jesus was to look upon God Himself. We're told today as those who belong to to the kingdom of God, those who are citizens of heaven in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're told that today we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold the the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. But we're only able to behold him as in a mirror dimly. Okay, Now mirrors in the ancient world were not like mirrors in the modern world. Okay, They were not as clear as they are today. Right? There was a more dim, vague reflection. And so right now, that's what we're able to see. But the promise in 1 Corinthians 13 is that one day, it won't be like a dimly lit mirror, but one day it will be stunning 72K resolution face to face with God. 
beyond any clarity you could possibly imagine. And then here in Revelation 22, the mirror is gone, the veil is lifted, the spiritual seeing that we have now becomes a physical seeing with our eyes that have been glorified in the presence of God. What has been in part is now in whole. What was lost in the garden, listen, walking with God in the cool of the day. You remember that phrase in Genesis chapter 3? Where our first parents used to walk with God as He would visit with them in the cool of the day and speak to them face to face. What was lost in the garden has been restored in this new garden, this last garden, this final garden. The face-to-face communion and presence with God. Furthermore, we're not done. His name will be on their foreheads. This fulfills the promises of Revelation chapter 3 verse 12 where we're told, I, God says, I will write on them my new name. Revelation 14.1, His name and the name of His Father are written on their foreheads. You see, in this new Eden, we will share the name of our God. What this means is this, church, that our character and our reputation will be so transformed, so renewed in the light of the glory of God that we shall fully bear His name, which means we'll act like Him, we'll think like Him, we'll love like Him, we'll cherish what He cherishes, we will love what He loves, we will do what He does. As those who have been transformed, glorified in the presence of God. But there's one more thing. Finally, the servants of God will reign with Him in the light of His glory forever. Listen, in the original garden, our first parents were given dominion to rule over the earth. And while that remains after the fall, it's bent and broken, misshapen. But in this new garden, this last garden, it will be restored and straightened out fully. And we see hints of this throughout the Bible as well. In Daniel 7, 18, Daniel has a vision, and what he sees is that the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Or in Daniel 7, 27, we're told that the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdom of heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High, to God's servants, His priests. In 1 Peter 2, 9, Christians are called a royal priesthood, servants of God who are royalty in their relation to the king. And what this likely means is this, is that we will participate in the rule of Christ over the eternal kingdom as our first parents were intended to exercise full dominion over all that God had created. All that's going to be restored in all of its fullness. So listen. Find joy in God. This He is the treasure of heaven. The treasure of heaven. The treasure of heaven is not no more sickness. The treasure of heaven is not no more sadness. The treasure of heaven is not a restoration with your loved ones. As glorious as that may be. 
The treasure of heaven is not the jasper that you can mine from the foundation of the city walls. The treasure of heaven is not the gold that paves the streets. The treasure of heaven is not the emeralds and the diamonds. Heaven is the throne of God and the Lamb and the presence of God face to face. And if that's what you're longing for this Advent, you're waiting for the arrival of that, then you can know that there is nothing in this world that can rob you of joy. No matter what you feel like has been lost forever. That God is the source of joy because He's the treasure of heaven. Heaven is the new Eden, church. So don't give up hope that God is able to restore even the deepest places of brokenness in your life. If you will look to Him for joy. Let's pray together this morning. Father, today, we trust that you are able to give beauty for ashes. You're able to anoint our heads with the oil of gladness and not despair. And that you're able to plant us like mighty oaks of righteousness who would be like the tree planted by streams of water in Psalm 1 that would bear its fruit in all seasons that our lives can look like that today because there is an Eden in the future for your servants. Father, we know that the promise of Revelation 22 is only for those who have placed their confidence in Jesus. So Lord, I ask if there's anyone who may be under the sound of my voice today who has not done so, who is still living under the curse of the law, not seeing that Jesus became a curse for them, to rescue them from the curse of sin, from your divine judgment against their rebellion. May they place their faith in Christ, be born again, have a living hope, and be inheritors of a guaranteed Eden and paradise in the future. Help them to see that Eden is not theirs because they have labored long and hard, because they have been good. But Eden can be theirs because you have been gracious and loving. And Father, for those who have indeed placed their confidence in Jesus, may they not lose heart. But know that you're able to recover and to restore and to reclaim and to redeem anything. Because you do not cast us out into the dump, 
but you are even now working by your Holy Spirit to restore us into the kinds of people who will one day reign and rule with you forever in the light of your glory. Help us to long for that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand this morning, church, as we sing together in response to what God has said through his word. If you need prayer this morning, if you have questions about the message or questions about the church, we'll be at the back kiosk on your way out. Love to connect with you, pray with you, pray for you, or answer any questions you might have. But I invite you to sing.